Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget, or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And how to be fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, by the book listeners, Kristen here. Did you know that you can receive a weekly by the book affirmation mini-sode plus the rules of every book that we've lived by? It's easy. All you have to do is become a member of our Patreon community. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash listen to buy the book. Again, that's patreon.com slash listen to buy the book, or just look at the episode description from today's show. The following podcast contains barnyard language and some adult content. So maybe listen on headphones if you're at work or around small children. Now, here's the show. Hey, Jolenta. Yes, Kristen. This past season, while living by celebrity self-help books, have you ever wondered, what would Trish Travis say? Um, Yes, I have wondered that so much. Every single day. Almost all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Trish shared so much great history, so much great context, so much great insight when we were living by all those self-help books through the decades. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that she probably knows a lot about how we went from Dale Carnegie to uh, Amber Rose. (laughs) Yes, I'm guessing she does. And lucky for us, she's agreed to join us today. Well, then let's talk to her, please, because I am Jolenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Trish Travis, cultural historian. And this is By the Book. Welcome back to another By the Book bonus episode. Reminder, this is our Between Seasons treat for your ears. And today, we're putting the last season of Celebrity Self-Help Books into context with our favorite self-help scholar. But first, a reminder, if a bonus episode every other week is not enough for you... 
please consider joining our amazing Patreon community, where you can receive a weekly affirmation mini-sode every Tuesday and a full written set of rules to a book we've lived by every Friday in exchange for a small monthly donation. You can join by going to patreon.com slash listen to buy the book or just follow the link in the episode description. All right. All right. Let's get to our guest, Trish Travis. I'm so excited. Uh, Reminder, Professor Travis is a 20th century U.S. cultural and literary historian with a focus on gender and popular culture. Her subspecialties are the history of medicine with a focus on therapy, addiction and recovery and self-help. And if you are lucky enough to be in Florida, you should definitely take one of her classes because she teaches at the University of Florida. Professor Travis, welcome back to the show. We're so pumped to have you here today. Thanks for the invite, you guys. I've been wondering how you were doing and wondering what was going on on By the Book. (laughs) Uh, We've missed you so much, and we have been living by celebrity self-help books. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more about that choice. (laughs) Well, I just got to say, Jolenta and I both are big pop culture lovers and watchers. We're both culture critics. And it is such an enormous part of the genre. And we felt we've been dabbling here and there throughout the seasons by living by celebrity self-help books. But there are literally thousands of them. That's right. I said literally talking about books, literally thousands of celebrity self-help books. So we thought, why not just take a whole season and live by some of them. So that's what we did. All right, Professor Travis, first things first. A few listeners wrote in this season to say that they wish that we had lived by more legitimate self-help books. Um, Do you consider celebrity self-help books any more or less legitimate than, I don't know, uh, like a self-help book like The Secret? Well... The first thing we would need to do to really get into that question is define what you mean by legitimate. Um, (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) um, But that sounds like it's going to take us in a long, complicated uh, direction that maybe we don't really want to go in. So let me say a couple of things about the books you all read this season. And maybe this does get at the question of legitimacy. So when I looked at the list, um, I have to say that I about half of the authors I'd never even heard of. So celebrity, <laughs> I think, means something different than it used to. We live in a much more niche-marketed media environment than was the case in the 1950s or even the 1970s. Um, and so celebrities may have huge followings and also be completely unknown to, uh, to large portions of uh, the American mm-hmm. citizenship. So the legitimacy of a celebrity self-help book may hinge a lot on who that celebrity's followers are. In that case, I could see why some people would think that a self-help book by someone they basically never heard of is not legitimate. But that's not the same thing that I think your readers are talking about, which is that somehow the content of these books is less meaningful or less useful or uh, less valued than some other book that is powered by ideas rather than a personality. 
And I can sort of get that. But we have a long history of valuing ideas because they are associated with a person. That's the nature of the celebrity biography, the celebrity Lifetime TV movie, and the Mm -hmm. celebrity memoir, which is usually a kind of self-help book. Um, And I'm, I'm not sure that those texts, if you know and value the author behind them, are any less legitimate or substantive than texts that are idea-driven rather than personality-driven. Unless you want to say that in general, the author is just a vehicle for ideas and we don't want any personality-driven books. But that seems contrary to fact because we are always (laughs) interested in the life stories of great people, narratives of heroes and heroines, and read those for inspiration and edification uh, and tips on how to do our lives. So while I'm reluctant to make a blanket judgment on whether celebrity self-help is more or less legitimate than idea-driven self-help, I would say that we couldn't really say that that's true unless we wanted to eliminate large categories of inspiring literature from the canon of self-help. At the same time, (laughs) (laughs) Uh at the same time, I can totally see why some readers would think that self-help books that are driven by these personalities are not legitimate because these personalities are connected to people that I don't know or care about. Um, so I think that, I think that there's maybe two different things going on in that critique, each of which is a legitimate question to explore. The question of, can we look to the lives of celebrities for inspiration and edification and which celebrities do we value enough to want to hear what they have to say to us that is supposed to be inspiring and edifying. We're living in a media environment where those two questions are separate from each other. And I think that may be where some of the cognitive dissonance may be coming in for some listeners. And Trish, this might seem like an obvious question to you, but for the rest of us, when did celebrities actually start writing self-help books? I mean, depending on what you mean by celebrity self-help books. So let me tell you a little bit about the history that I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, and then you can tell me whether this fits your description. Okay. So when I got y'all's invitation to come on the show, I immediately thought, huh, celebrity self-help books in history. Hmm. Then there was a long silence broken only by the sound of the cicada infestation. Um, <laughs> yes. And then there was a moment of panic Uh, And then I thought, of course, the first self-help book in the United States is a celebrity self-help book. And that's the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, uh, uh, published in 1791. Um, But I don't know if that book really fits into the genre that your listeners are thinking about, because it does offer tips and tricks. Franklin is very good at that. 
but it presents them within the sort of inspiring personal narrative um, as opposed to a sort of schematized, you know, areas of your life. These are the way you can do things. That's an older genre than I think um, many people are accustomed to. And the, I noticed that in the books you all read this um, season, the books were not mostly memoirs. They are much more sort of um, topically structured overviews with ideas for how to uh, to how to how to proceed. Biography and and memoir are, are sort of wound into those those books, but they aren't the but they aren't the driving force. Um, Franklin's story, like the title suggests, uh, is the story of his life. And you are meant to extract from that story lessons on how to engage with the world in your own practice. He does have a little section called the Project for Moral Perfection, where he makes a list of (laughs) habits and uh, values that he has pursued and suggests that you do the same. So that's the sort of didactic moment in the autobiography, which, by the way... Moral perfection, excuse me? (laughs) Sure, it's called the Project for Moral Perfection. Uh, Oh, I love it. What uh, a lofty, lofty name slash goal. uh, (laughs) Well, you know, go big or go home. Uh, That's how the Founding Fathers rolled. Um, True. So Franklin wrote the autobiography without the intent of publishing it. He intended it as a a document for his son to read after his uh, death, and the son... The Sun published it to some acclaim. Um, and the you would be amazed that the Project for Moral Perfection um, contains many of the exact same kinds of life prescriptions that self-help books through the ages have, um, have built on. It also appears in a, a sort of remixed form in The Great Gatsby, if you'll recall at the end of that novel, Nick Carraway finds Gatsby's list for how to improve himself from being a sort of, you know, random um, working class guy to become a millionaire. The virtues that in the Project for Moral Perfection are the ones that drive the Horatio Alger novels of the early 20th century to teach um, working class and poor people how to survive and thrive in the urban environment. So they're all the same kinds of things that you do. You know, don't go to bed too late. Get up early and do exercises so that your body stays strong. <laughs> Read edifying texts. Hang around with smart, respectable people, not with drunkards and criminals. Um, you know, so these are so these are the values that um, that Franklin's narrative shows him living. And then there's this little didactic section at the end where he breaks it out into a table, so you can check things off as you do them in your own life. <laughs> now, Franklin's book could be published and valued because he was already famous. Um, he was as famous as a person could be in the early 19th century. I don't think I need to review his accomplishments for your listening audience, <laughs> but there were a lot of them. Um, and that was a moment in time in which you needed some sort of public stature for your private life to be seen as valuable by strangers, Not many people could obtain that public stature at that time. And surprise, surprise, they were almost always white men who did obtain that stature. Um, Mm. But the ability that average Americans have to obtain that kind of visibility, that kind of legitimacy, to go back to the word you used earlier, 
the ability for people to obtain that legitimate stature has increased a little bit during the 19th century. Things opened up for people who were not signers of the Declaration of Independence to become legitimate public experts. That changed a little bit over the 19th century, and it's changed a lot over the 20th century. So now many people are able to be seen as legitimate public figures from whose lives the average person can extract wisdom, lessons, inspiration. The way the media landscape has changed to allow that sort of democratization of celebrity is what has allowed the authors you all looked at this season to come into a public space and be legitimate, famous people worth knowing about, even as they remain unknown to millions of other people. <laughs> so there's a so there's a, been a change in the media landscape that ha- over the over two hundred years, say, that has allowed different kinds of people to become celebrities. And once they become celebrities, they can be the legitimate authors of self-help books. More people, I think, have trended towards writing memoirs about their celebrity because that narrative of success is kind of more readable and relatable, as my students like to say. It's easier to relate to that than it is to a didactic set of lessons. Um, So the celebrity memoir is a sort of more well-established genre that many people would read because they're curious about that personality and they're willing to pick up some good advice along the way. That's a little different from saying, oh, Jessica Alba, she's a real role model for me and I want to know from her how she's done it and I'm willing to take lessons from her. There's a real difference in who your whose story you want to read and absorb information passively from and who you believe is so legitimate that you're willing to take how-tos from them. And I think that that is a difference um, that maybe some readers are responding to, and that is a difference in the way books have been packaged and marketed um, that has really picked up in the era of social media. Right. God, that was a really long answer, and I'm not sure no. whether it was on point. <laughs> What's beautiful is you answered our next two questions. You just I right, 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 right. Yeah, organically. So then I was just gonna, I was just gonna like bring it full circle ish uh, back to what you were saying about um, uh, everything is geared towards sort of like niche industries. Is that why at least I feel like I'm perceiving um, a sort of uptick in these celebrity how to guides? Yeah, I think that that's very much why you're seeing that. Um, I think that there is a sense that there are market niches that are now very large. Um, That is something new in the last 15 years, maybe. Social media has allowed that to happen. Niche markets have always existed, and celebrities have tried to fill them with their personalities and their stories, sometimes published as memoirs, sometimes not. Um, but the niche market as something that will actually realize a return on investment 
That is something that is quite new and that social media has allowed to happen. That's so cool. Another thing that has happened because of social media is that rather than having a complex professional press apparatus to create and promote one celebrity, social media stars, influencers and the like, have become, to a large extent, their own promotion machines. And so the creation of a brand, in a way, invites or demands the writing of books as ways of amplifying or extending your brand message um, in a way in which the book used to be the extension of the tabloid magazine article and the TV personality and the news feature story. And a book would be like the culmination of that. Now we have a much more flat media hierarchy in which a book is just a part of a platform. A book is going to reach a certain kind of audience member, probably older, maybe a little more wealthy. Um, but it is not, no one is going to publish a book and then get famous from it. The way that celebrity is being manufactured within social media now, it's all driven by what is happening in your Instagram and your TikTok. And the book is, an, is a way to extend, sort of maybe make a longer presentation, a more complex presentation, um, and a presentation that will sort of push you out to a, a, another, another level of audience. Um, but it has to complement the online presence and it has to sort of add to and remix. And all of these different media forms are mutually reinforcing. And they're all about the same notion of sort of moving the brand forward. And I don't know if you all talked about this in the season episodes, but my guess is that um, the books that you looked at for that are the most recent are really probably even repurposing content from online social media feeds to the pages of the book oh, itself. Yes. Totally. Yes. Yeah. One of them even just came right out and admitted these are all blog posts from that's right. my a, website. That's amazing. Uh, so the so it's all just about sort of moving the message into a different format. And I'm I'd be very curious to know whether the books actually make any money for the publishers or whether mm. the value to publishers is just the association with the influencer. This is a really different sort of business model for the publication of books, and I'm not sure whether it's going to work well for the publishing industry, um, but I'd be really curious to know the numbers of copies of these titles that are being sold and to whom and why they're buying them. Because if you can get this content for free on Instagram or for a nominal fee, um, if you're paying like a premium price for access to premium content, why buy the book? What's the value of the book in this case? Um, and how are celebrity authors thinking about creating book content that builds on, extends, and is it all different from 
the content that they're putting out in their Twitter feed and on their Instagram. Um, these are really interesting questions about the form that these books take and whether they are really books at all or just paper-bound versions <laughs> of electronic content. And if that's the case, why are they put it, why are they being put out there? What is it about the book form that still seems to legitimate to go back to that word, which is not a word that I thought was <laughs> going to be really important in this conversation, but really is emerging that way. In what way does the book legitimate ideas that are put out there through social media in a way that people still want legitimation, even if they don't need the legitimation of a print book? What's going on there? Wow. It's all like a content circle, just being repurposed and like gaining followers. And <laughs> it really, it really seems to, it really seems to be that way. And I, by saying that, I don't mean to say, and therefore these are not legitimate and you should go back to reading the secret because the question of the secret's legitimacy is a deeper issue. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and a different kind of legitimacy crisis. Um, but it really is interesting to me to to see these book publications as brand extensions and to wonder as someone who writes books that no one buys um, and as someone who buys books that I then don't read, <laughs> I wonder to myself, <laughs> what is it about the book form that is pushing these celebrities to go into that space for the, for the um, publication and circulation of their ideas. There's something about a book that we want, even if the content of it is not that dissimilar from content that we can get elsewhere. What is it about the book? That's a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. Oof. Yeah. We're going to leave I you to think about that while we take a very quick break. Uh, and we'll be back with more of the amazing, very thought-provoking Professor Trish Travis. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. We're back with Professor Trish Travis, our resident historian, to talk about 
the culture and history of celebrity self-help books. Now, Trish, when we left off, we were talking about the publishing industry itself, and now we want to talk about how race factors into that. So half the celebrity self-help books we live by this season were by people of color, and it turns out celebrity self-help is one of the only genres that publishers consistently sign on Black authors for. Do you think that by reading self-help books by Black authors, we're reinforcing the biased practices of the publishing industry? Or is it a first step to opening up other publishing genres to people of color? I don't know. What's next? <laughs> uh, there's a lot packed into that question. So let's ch- let me try to let's try to break it down a little bit here. So okay. um, first off, we would want to know uh, why has this been the case that self-help publishing will offer a space or a platform, if you will, uh, to authors of color in a way that other parts of the publishing world just to say fiction, for example, um, has not been so uh, hospitable. I think that there's a lot going on in that decision. And it reminds me of something that I've noticed in the New York Times over the last um, few years, which is that for a long time, the Times covered Black popular culture with some regularity, you would read about black theater, black artists, you know, mu- lots of music criticism in the, in the New York Times, in the New Yorker, in white-dominated sort of mainstream elite cultural outlets. There would be a fair bit of coverage of, of uh, people of color in the art world. And on the one hand, here's the glass half full reason, that is that uh, we could say that American culture and American cultural gatekeepers have been willing to recognize the contributions, the cultural contributions of people of color um, because those cultural contributions are overwhelming in their greatness. They can't be denied. And that there's a recognition of the fact that arts and leisure and sort of culture are spaces that, People are more broad-minded. We're more willing to be democratic, and the the virtues of black culture makers and artists have been undeniable. So, shorthand, that space is a little less racist, um, and we are willing to see value among artists and celebrities that we would not see in spaces where white power brokers are a little bit more conservative. So the Times and the New Yorker covered the culture and arts of people of color, even though they didn't employ that many of them on their staffs. I think we might say a similar dynamic is is what you're observing in the publishing industry, which is that Self-help is a space where, well, there are lots of um, black celebrities out there, people of color celebrities out there who have something to offer, and we want to bring them in. We want to make their voices heard, and we'll just keep them corralled in this small area, which is one that, as we've discussed on this show in the past, is feminized, somewhat stigmatized, and marginalized from the lists that 
publishers have traditionally cared the most about, which are the serious nonfiction and the serious literature lists. So glass half full version of what you're seeing is that there's broad mindedness and there is recognition of the value that people are bringing to this space. And part of the reason we can recognize that is because then we can keep these other spaces close to them. Um, so that may be what you're seeing. Um, and I think that if that's the dynamic that's at work, then yeah, I guess reading these books would reinforce that um, insofar as our purchasing power can reinforce existing social and power structures. And if we're, that's what we're seeing, then I guess a thing to do would be to boycott books like this because they are reinforcing a power structure that is not only not legitimate, but that is congratulating itself on its political progressiveness, even when it is using it as a sort of screen uh, to stop itself, to stop real change from happening. If that's what people are thinking, then they might want to look to um, books that are not published by mainstream uh, presses uh, that are foregrounding the voices of uh, people of color. I think of Bell Hooks's longstanding relationship with South End Press. Um, that is a woman of color edited um, house that has published her books and Bell Hooks has become an author of um, significant cultural uh, standing who could publish with a mainstream house. Um, so she has made a choice to resist the dynamic that you just talked about. It would be interesting to do empirical research on the construction of the publishing industry to see the ways, to see if there are ways in which the racial diversification of the self-help category has had any spillover effects into the serious nonfiction and fiction categories. The same houses have different imprints that publish in those areas. People can move from job to job. And perhaps if you worked in the less biased and hierarchical space of self-help and then moved into nonfiction or fiction, you might bring a broader view that would help to diversify and open up space in one of those more high prestige jobs. That's an empirical question that we don't have uh, access to unless somebody out there who's looking for a big research project wants to do the kind of ethnographic work in personnel records that they would need to do to figure that out. <laughs> but my guess is that there is maybe some there are maybe some lanes of influence that are uh, moving around. And I think that one thing that is important to keep in mind is the the shifting values of these different areas of publishing. The self-help category has been traditionally seen as very lucrative for a publishing house and very low status, whereas non serious nonfiction and, uh, and literary fiction are the high prestige, low profit areas for publishing. As the publishing industry as a whole has contracted over the last 40 years, there have been big decisions made about how to 
balance the profit and losses across the divisions of the big publishing houses so that self-help has become even more important to publishers' bottom line. And my guess is that for good or ill, its profitability may be meaning that the folks who work in that area of publishing are a little less stigmatized and taken a little bit more seriously by upper management. And so maybe that kind of open-mindedness that they've had, which may or may not be anti-racist, but it has been open, um, that may be shifting some of the decision-making in other areas of the publishing industry. And going back to what we talked about before, we are now in a time where the niche market is sometimes has there is still a broad market that literary fiction wants to target but niche markets are more and more important and more and more lucrative because they can be reached through social media in ways that were not possible even 20 years ago so i think that that is a that is a way in which social media may be helping the the bottom line of literary publishing and in in helping the economic viability of book publishing overall, allowing spaces to emerge for for authors of color who even a few years ago would have been seen as terrific, but we just can't afford it. Now there's a market and we can reach that market, which is something that did not exist in the, in the past. Wow. That's so much to digest. So I'm going to shift gears entirely um, and ask a very different question. Um, what happens when someone starts off as a self-help author, but then becomes a celebrity, a la like Brene Brown, who now has cameos in movies and a media empire? Does their celebrity status change the advice or how the advice is perceived? So this is a really interesting issue. And when I uh, got y'all's invitation, I sat down and started thinking about like, okay, are we going to talk about self-help celebrities? Are we going to talk about celebrities who write self-help? So your books this season really focused on the latter, which is the celebrity who then gives advice about how to be like me or how not to be like me um, or some things I've learned that you might want to, um, you know, benefit from. Oprah Winfrey and Martha Stewart are sort of the first big innovators in this space in recent memory. Um, but then there's plenty more. I actually went back through the Goodreads, has these lists of self-help published in the uh, in the different decades. And it was interesting to see Larry King and Gloria Steinem, Lauren Graham, uh, people like that in recent memory who something about my life has, you know, value that I think other people will want to get. So I'm going to write a book about it. Um those are really different. And those are, those are people who have follow who are really following on the Ben Franklin model. Um, there is something about my life that the ordinary person would benefit from knowing. 
that is really different from the self-help celebrity, who I think is a much more recent sort of a formation. And in addition to um, Brene Brown, whom we've talked about before, I think about Glennon Doyle as an example of this. Mm -hmm. Right. And also going back a few decades, uh, Ianla Van Zant. Um, who never reached the huge crossover success of someone like Brene Brown, um, but who did go from being the author of a single book to becoming her own sort of self-help industry. And Marianne Williamson is another person that I would put in this uh, Uh, category. Ah, yes, of course. Um, uh, You know, they start in a space of producing knowledge because they think that knowledge is valuable, and then... It proves valuable enough that they then become sort of culture brokers, um, gatekeepers in their own rights, and you know, multi-platform content generators. To, uh, for lack of a better word, does that move into the space of celebrity change the validity of their message? I think probably not. I don't think that, I can't think off the top of my head of many people who have started out with one message as a sort of, you know, just I'm going to write a book about my thoughts and then become (laughs) uh, famous and so change their message. I don't, I don't see that happening. Um, We've talked before and I know some readers were, or some listeners were uncomfortable with this. We've talked before about the fact that Brene Brown is no longer a professor who does um, uh, formally controlled scientific research through the structures of the university research enterprise. Um, uh, so her self-help message has changed because she is no longer an academic researcher she can't do the kind of work that she would if she were a university professor bringing in grants from the government as part of her salary. That doesn't mean her message has changed, though. Um, And I think that Glennon Doyle, for all of the permutations that she's gone through in her life since she first entered the market, is also giving the same sort of basic message. So I don't see there being a necessary change when you go from sort of self-help entrepreneur to self-help celebrity. There will be shifts in emphasis, differences in the way you do business, um, and differences in where you draw your inspiration and evidence from. But I don't know if that really matters that much. One of the things that I think keeps people from changing too much is the dynamic we talked about a minute ago, which is that once you become a brand, you need brand consistency and you need to keep your brand message on point or risk losing a lot of your market. And I think that this is one of the things that has made Oprah such an incredible entrepreneur over I mean, she's been in the market now for 40 years uh, and there's been some changes, you know, uh, this, that and the other and stuff. But her message has remained really consistent. Um, And I think that the ability to innovate and keep it fresh without getting off message 
that's a real talent and a skill. And I think that if you're going to make that jump from small time book writer to big time, um, you know, culture influencer, you have to be good at that. And consistency is part of good in this world. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We've seen that uh, a couple of times where people who have become very, very famous after writing self-help books, where they've slipped from their message and it's really hurt them. For example, Rachel Hollis of Girl Washer oh, right. fame. You know, her whole message was like, look at me. I'm just like you. I struggle with my weight. I'm relatable. Look at me. I'm I'm juggling parenthood and work. Look at me. And um, a lot of people loved that. They really related to her. And then she blew it all up because she was talking about the woman who cleans her toilets and how she works harder than uh, that woman. And she worked so hard that she earns the right to have somebody else clean her toilets. And she's not trying to be relatable. If I wanted to be relatable, uh, I wouldn't have this empire. I am not relatable. I work harder than relatable people. And oh boy, <laughs> that really... <laughs> You're right about that consistency of message, though. Then she compared herself to a Rosa Parks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, and I think this is one of the things that 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 really struck me when I looked at your list for this season and realized how completely out of the how completely out of it I am because so many of these folks are names that I don't recognize. I can't even imagine what it must be like to have to strive for your brand consistency all the time. Um, all of the views all of the people following you, all of your messages have to stay within this sort of narrow prescribed range, which for celebrities is a range in which you have to be presenting yourself and performing your authenticity all the time. Um, What an incredible emotional strain that must be. We all struggle with that strain in the workplace and in our families and stuff, performing our authenticity when oftentimes we'd really just be rather taking a nap. Um, And to do that at the level of your hundreds of thousands of followers um, and to keep the message in every tweet, even if you're not writing them yourself, you're just monitoring the person who writes them for you, to make sure that you you keep that message consistency. Um, And it not only has to be sound, it not only has to be consistent, but it has to sound real. I can't even imagine what that must be like. I mean, you all live a life that is much closer to that than I do because you are um, self-employed, you have multiple platforms, you have different products, different spaces that you work in. I mean, I just sit in my basement and work on a book and go to class and teach every once in a while. So (laughs) I have a very, you know, late 20th century um, life in terms of the management of my personality. And I already find it very challenging uh, just with the few points of interface that I have. It staggers me to think about the way my daughter will have to do this uh, just as a regular person moving through the 21st century and the way that celebrities who choose to bring their persons into these public spaces for examination and with the purpose of inspiring and teaching others, I can't even imagine taking on that burden. I think it must create some kind of internal schizophrenia that 
would get difficult to manage after a certain point. And maybe that's what happened in the case of Rachel Hollis is that she just lost the ability to keep it all under control. And I, I it's appalling. Um, and yet I can kind of understand it because the labor of managing the public presentation of your personal life just seems massive. I don't understand how yeah. people are doing it. And I don't, I don't understand why anyone would choose to do it. Um, I see that there can be great rewards, financial and reputational, but the labor just looks too intense to me. Mm. All right. Well, Trish, we are having such a great time with you, but we got to wrap up soon. We have only one more question for you, but first, we're going to take a really quick break before we get to that. Stay with us, everyone. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. All right, we are back and we have one final question for one of our all-time favorite guests, Professor Trish Travis. All right, the question is, are there any celebrity self-help books that you've read that you would recommend? So a couple of weeks ago, when the New York Knicks, my favorite NBA team, got into the playoffs for the first time in so long, I decided, you know what? It's time to read a celebrity coaching book, which is a genre that I have dipped into occasionally because I feel like sports psychology is a really interesting um, space in which people think about a lot of stuff that's relevant in the teaching of young people. So I just recently read Phil Jackson's 11 Rings. <laughs> oh my gosh, Trish. Wow, wow. Gosh, I never would have guessed that. Wow. The farthest from my mind. Uh, <laughs> if asked to guess. Uh, so I know it sounds, it may sound crazy, but um, it's the, I had read Phil Jackson's first book. I can't remember the name of it now, uh, like 10 years ago. And I wanted to read um, the Pat Riley coaching book, um, because I felt like, yeah, Phil Jackson, I did that already. I'd like to know something about Pat Riley. He's a really different kind of coach. Um, going back into the school year, I'm going to try to like, you know, um, you know, run my classes a little bit differently. Uh, I want to, I want to learn about somebody else's coaching style, but the Pat Riley book was checked out from the library. So I was just like, eh, I'll read Jackson's uh, second book and see what it is. And I really liked it. <laughs> Nice. Uh, <laughs> even though uh, you know, even though I'm, uh, I can't, um, I can't support the Bulls or the Lakers. Um, and Jackson <laughs> was a huge adversary of the Knicks when he was with those teams. Um, but I thought it was really 
useful. It talks a lot about how to manage a bunch of entitled, immature um, professionals. And that's kind of what working in the university is like. Um, (laughs) And it's an intelligent book that draws on a variety of different kinds of literature. I think Phil Jackson is smarter than the average NBA coach um, and more well-read. And I felt like I learned some stuff from reading it. Um, So Phil Jackson's 11 Rings, uh, it's uh, it's a good one. I think that's the only celebrity self-help book I've read not for work in the last five years or so. I did read some other self-help books during quarantine, but they were just idea-driven, not, uh, uh, not celebrity. So I'm gonna, that's all I can give you right there. You heard it here first, listeners. Professor Trish Travis loves celebrity self-help books. She loves them. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Celebrity, NBA coach celebrity self-help books. <laughs> <laughs> She's all about them. Highly recommend. What I really want is to is for Steve Nash to write a, uh, a coaching book now that he's uh, coached the Nets, even if they did um, tr- drop out of the, uh, the playoffs <laughs> a few weeks ago. Uh, but uh, but no, I uh, I highly recommend. Uh, you're going to get a lot, of, um, a lot of value for the money, uh, and especially if you check it out from the library and don't actually pay anything. There you go. <laughs> wow. What a, what a recommendation. <laughs> Professor Travis, thank you so, so much for coming back to the show. Um, it was such a delight having you. Can you remind our listeners of your books and uh, where they can where they can find more Professor Travis? Uh, I am the author of Rethinking Therapeutic Culture, which was published in 2016, and of The Language of the Heart, a cultural history of 12-step recovery from Alcoholics Anonymous to Oprah Winfrey. They are available at your local independent bookseller and on Amazon and at all places where quality books are sold. And, And of course... We want to reiterate, you can always take a class with Professor Trish Travis at the University of Florida. Well, you actually can't take a class with me unless you're enrolled as a student at the University of right, Florida. Right, I was going to say, you have to be a student there. But you but can certainly drop into my get office on anytime. It. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine, fine. <laughs> Professor Trish Travis, thanks so much for being back with it us. It was delightful. Thank you so much oh, for the invitation. So and I hope I will see you all in person or in cyberspace sometime soon. <laughs> Ditto. That hope goes both ways. And that's it for this bonus episode of By the Book. Huge, huge thank you to our production team at Stitcher. They're awesome. Brandon Nix, Corinne Wallace, Daisy Rosario, and Andy Christens. Thanks also to Nate Wida. He composed our theme song. And thanks to the Rizzos who performed the theme song. Please stay in touch. Send any questions or suggestions for future books for us to live by, or just give us some feedback. Our email address is kristenangelenta at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at Jolenta G, at Kristen Meinzer, or at Buy the Book Pod. And be sure to follow us on Instagram as well, at Buy the Book Pod. Also, if you like us, please rate us and review us in wherever you're listening to your podcast, in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever. It helps people find the show. It helps spread the by the book love. 
Um, and if you haven't already, tell a friend about the show. Tell a professor about the show. Tell a historian about the show. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jalenta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Stitcher. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.